I want to begin tonight just talking about being with other people. There is something about being with other people, right? It's something that we desire, uh, whether things are going well or whether things maybe are challenging and not going so well. I, I've talked to a few guys through the years that have went on vacation alone, and it always struck me as something that was odd. I thought that's, that's something, and if you like to go on vacation alone, I'm sorry, that's fine. Um, but it's not something that I would ever do because if I'm going to go and I'm going to see an ocean or I'm going to see a mountain or I'm going to experience a great meal or some great entertainment, I want to do that with somebody. I want to have somebody that I care about that's with me whenever I'm going through that joyful moment. And kind of in the same way as we think about trials, you know, uh, to think about someone that's facing a surgery and they're alone. Uh, sitting in the hospital alone, no one's there to console them, to encourage them, to be with them post-op. That just seems like that's wrong to us. It seems like someone should be there with them in their trials and in their hardships. And that's because God has designed us to be with others. He's designed us to be in community with other people. So it makes sense if God designed us to be that way that he would be the kind of God that wants to be with us too, right? That seems to make a lot of sense to me. And if he didn't operate like that, it would seem like he wouldn't be our God because we're, we've been designed as a people that like to be with one another, whether things are good, whether things are bad, or somewhere in between. So what I want to look at tonight is, does God want to be with us? How do we know? And is that necessary for God to be with us? Is that important? Is that a high priority for him to be near to us, because I think if we're honest with ourselves, and, and b- me being honest as well, there's times where it feels like God is not with me. It feels like that God is far away from me. Maybe you've experienced times like that before too, and you think, well, I, I know what God's word says. In fact, Paul says in Acts 17, 27, that God is not far from each one of us. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way. So is God near to us? Is God with us, even in times when he might feel distant? And I think to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God wants to be near to us and that God is near to us, all we have to do is look at Christmas. All we have to do is look at the manger and say, yes, he wants to be near us. It says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So in the incarnation of Christ, God put on human flesh And he dwelt among us. And that leads us to the passage that I want to look at tonight that's going to give us kind of our um, theme that we're going to be checking out here. And it's in Matthew chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy from 700 years prior that a virgin woman would give birth to a human son who would be God with us. What a great mystery. What are the implications of that tonight, of God wanting to be with us? And is that necessary? Why was that necessary? I want to look at three different reasons tonight. And the first one is, God has always longed to be close. God has always longed to be close. All you have to do is take a quick survey of the Old Testament to see that God has always longed to be close to his people. Time and time again, God shows a relentless desire to be close to a people that sometimes don't want to be close to him, but he keeps coming back and keeps coming back and continues to try to press in. We look at the life of Adam in Genesis chapter 2, and we see this intimate relationship that Adam immediately has with God. So God creates Adam, and he breathes life into his nostrils. And from that moment on, he, it, it seems that he is right there with Adam. So he plants a garden, he makes a home for Adam, and then he gives him a purpose, he gives him work to do, and he's continuing to, to help mold and shape his life, but he's right there next to him as he's doing it. He tries to find a helper for Adam, and he brings all the animals to Adam so that Adam can name them and see if any of these animals would be suitable as a helper for him. So from the moment that God made Adam, he is right there with him side by side in all that he does. God wants to be close to Adam. We look at the life of Moses, just a, a little ways down the road, starting in Exodus. And God hears the cries of his people in Exodus chapter 2. They've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and he comes to set them free. And he does miracle after miracle to set them free by these plagues that happen to the people of Egypt and to Pharaoh. And he continues to do miracles to sustain them when they're in the wilderness, to provide fresh water for them, to, to provide food for them through the manna that he, that he provides. His presence is with them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. His presence is with them in the tabernacle where a cloud arises uh, from where he is, where, his, um, where he's dwelling. And so again, we see God is right there with Israel. He's right there with them side by side as they're going through this journey. And as we keep going and we look at the, the leader after Moses, we look at Joshua. Well, they're entering into the promised land and it wasn't just going to be handed over to them. They had some, some mighty enemies that were in front of them. Well, they really needed God to be with them during that time and, and God shows up. They didn't have the skill or the knowledge or the weaponry to defeat Jericho or Ai or the Amorites, but yet God goes before them and is with them, and God guarantees Joshua in the first chapter of his book, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If you keep going and you look at judges and you look at the kings and you look at the prophets, you'll see that many times the people of Israel, they, they had a, a hot relationship with God, then they had a cold one, and they were back and forth, right? Back and forth. So sometimes they didn't even want God to be close to them, and there were certainly times where God would hand them over to their sinful idolatry and say, okay, well, if that's what you want, I'll let you have it. He would discipline them as any good father would. And all the judgment that they got, they deserved at times, but yet God never ultimately, ultimately would leave them. 
And we've even looked at recently, the last couple Sundays, we looked at Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9. And in Isaiah 8, we see that term Emmanuel, God with us, being spoken, being used by Isaiah. And as Ben has pointed out, that was a bleak time. The Assyrian army was on the horizon to do battle with the Israelites. There was going to be a lot of devastation and destruction. And then later on, the Babylonian armies were, were going to come. But yet the Lord says, I'm going to send someone who will be God in the flesh. He's not going to leave you even in the darkest times. He will be with you. And this constant theme that we see in the Old Testament, it crescendos in the manger. Does God want to be with his people? Yes, he does. And the pinnacle of that is Jesus Christ, a baby boy that is born in a manger because he was going to be with his people because he was going to become one of his people. He was going to put on flesh and live among them. But why wasn't, why wasn't a cloud enough? Or why wasn't just a pillar of fire enough? Or why wasn't just uh, the signs and wonders enough? I mean, that was showing them that God was there, right? Why wasn't that enough? Well, the second thing that I want to look at tonight is that God wanted to be closer than that. God wanted to be closer. This is something that I think was very apparent by what many of our adult small groups and our youth group went through this last semester. We did a study on the book Gentle and Lowly. Many of you have read that or maybe heard of that book. And if I could summarize what I took away from that book, it would be that because of and in Jesus' humanity, that he identifies with us and he relates to us with more kindness and patience and compassion and love than we could ever imagine. We shortchange him on that so many times. But yet his great kindness and patience and grace and love that he has for us many times is driven out of his humanity. He's been there. He's been with us. He knows what it's like. And it's because he chose to become one of us. A cloud couldn't do that, right? Pillar of fire couldn't do that, as cool as those things are. A miracle couldn't do that. But God with us, as us, could certainly do that. Think of all the things that Jesus experienced. Well, he had human needs just like us. We need sleep. We need food. We need physical protection. He subjected himself to all those things. He sweat. He bled, just like we do. He experienced a range of human emotions, sorrow, joy, happiness, anger, just like we do. So he became like us in every way, and he can sympathize with us in every way, even in our weaknesses and our struggles. It says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. If you struggle with fear, you struggle with anxiety, you struggle with depression, you struggle with trials, trust, worry, whatever it might be, all the difficulties that this life has to offer, Jesus knows what it's like to struggle with that because he became one of us. But the thing about Jesus is he never succumbed to any kind of temptation, not a single time. And so when we're struggling, he knows the full weight of that temptation better than us because he never gave in. Dane Ortland, the author of Gentle and Lowly, talks about this in his book where he says, his utter purity suggests that he has felt these pains more acutely than we sinners ever could. So any kind of trouble that you're going through now, he knows what that feels like. He knows the weight of that thing. In fact, he knows it better than we do because he's never succumbed to any kind of sin related to that struggle that you might be going through. 
He knows what it's like, but he doesn't stop there. He offers a helping hand. Ortland says again, he himself is not trapped in the hole of sin with us. So he's not like us in that way. So he alone can pull us out. And he's more than willing to do so. If we look at the next verse in Hebrews 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He knows life is hard. He knows what it's like. But he doesn't sit on a throne of judgment today, does he? He sits on a throne of grace. And when do you need grace? When do you and I need grace and mercy? I need that when I don't deserve it. I need that when I've struggled with temptation, when I've fallen into sin, when I've failed, when I'm stumbling. That's when I need grace. That's when I need mercy. And that's the throne that he is sitting on. And that's why he can say, as the book talked about so many times, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I can provide that for you. My grace is sufficient for you, even in your weakness. And in your weakness, come to me. I understand. I'm there for you. So Jesus, because of who he is, he's not ashamed of us in our difficulties. He's not ashamed of us in our temptations. In fact, in Hebrews 2.11, it says he's not ashamed to call us brothers because we have the same father. He's a brother that's born for those moments, for that adversity. And he's our advocate. 1 John 2.1 says that he stands between us and a holy father, side by side, bringing us before him, even in our sin. It talks about in 1 John 2.2, the verse right after that, that he is the propitiation for our sins. And that leads us to our last point, which is God needed to be closer God has always been close. He wanted to be closer. But thirdly, he needed to be closer. Why did he need to be closer? Well, if we go back to our original passage in Matthew 1, verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus didn't just come here just to hang out, just to get to know us better, just to know kind of what it was like to be human. He came because we needed a Savior. He showed us the heart of God by how he lived, but he brought our redemption by how he died. And the thing is, is we don't start out life close to God. We don't start out life with God. Hebrews chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 makes that very clear. Starting in verse 1 in, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we begin life dead in our sins and our trespasses. It goes on in verse 3, and it tells us that we start out life, not as children of God, but as children of wrath. So that's our default stance. We're in opposition to God from the get-go, from the beginning. Later on, Paul says in verses 12 and 13, he says that we're separated from Christ and we are far off from him. What a, what a sad predicament when we think about it, when we have this God who wants to be so close, yet because of our sin, we are separated from him and we start out in life distant from him. But as we've looked at God and who he is, even just in our brief survey of the Old Testament, we can see that God was not going to just sit back and cross his arms and let humanity remain in that state, that he, was, he is the kind of God who's going to do something about that. And so he continues to come after mankind, and he provided a way to bridge the gap between his perfect holiness and our sin. He did that through the death of his son. So why did Jesus have to come as a human child? Why did he have to put on 
flesh and blood for us. Ultimately, it was to die for us. So in Adam, our flesh and blood, it's corrupt because of our sin. We suffer the consequence of that. We suffer death because of that. Our world is corrupt. It's chaotic. But in Christ, our flesh and blood is going to be redeemed. His sacrifice will redeem our bodies from the grave one day. It talks about this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It says, Since, therefore, the, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't put on flesh and blood in the incarnation to help someone else. It wasn't to help angels. It was to help mankind. He became one of us. His death destroyed death. And, and who is that applied to? The offspring of Abraham, according to the author of Hebrews. Well, well, what does that mean? Well, as we think about who Abraham was, talks about this in Romans chapter 4, he was a man of faith. He was a guy who believed God when it didn't make any sense to believe God. It kind of Beyond all hope, he believed God, even when it didn't look like God would be able to do something that he had said he was going to do. It says this in, talks about this in Romans 4, 20 through 25. It says, No belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, talking about Abraham, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And it was counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's our faith in this man, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, that died his death on the cross for our sins to make us right to God. And that is what has bridged the gap and made us close to God. If Jesus didn't put on flesh and blood, he could not adequately, adequately pay the price for our sins as our great substitute. If he wasn't raised to life, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if he wasn't raised to life, your faith means nothing. It's futile, and you're still in your sins. But praise God that he died and that he rose. And one thing that really amazes me about Christ, his, his life on earth, dwelling among us for 33 years, was amazing, his death on the cross, his resurrection to new life, but that he still wanted to continue in his humanity for eternity. And, and look at this in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus has ascended into heaven in his glorified humanly body, and the angels tell the disciples who are still looking up at the sky, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. When Jesus comes back, he's still going to be the God-man. We're still going to be able to see his humanity, and he's still going to dwell with us, but he's going to do it for all of eternity. Colossians 1.15, Paul said that he is the image of the invisible God, that we will continue for all of eternity to behold, except we'll be able to see the scars on his hands. To know, wow, everything that he went through so that he could be with us. What a Savior. 
So as we think about our desire to be close to others, our desire to be close to other people, whether things are good, whether things are bad, we long for someone that's going to be with us through thick and thin. We long for someone who can relate. And no one can perfectly besides Christ. He's the only one. He can fulfill those great longings that are in our heart. And God has shown, he has such a great desire to be with us. And through Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, he became like one of us so that in his life, his death, his resurrection, he will always be with those who draw to him by faith. The next thing that we're going to do tonight is we're going to be taking communion. And so let's take a few moments to just meditate and to pray about some of the things that I talked about tonight. Jesus in his humanity, his willingness to come, to pay the price for your sin, to die, that he's risen today, and to praise God for all that he's done to secure our salvation. This is also a time for believers, too, to consider their own life and just to think about any maybe sins that they need to confess before God at this time as well. This is open for anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, you don't necessarily have to be a member of our church. But if you follow Christ, we would love to have you partake of communion with us tonight. Um, the bread and the cup will be at different uh, stations throughout the, the worship center. And after you take a time to reflect and a time to pray, uh, come and partake. We would also say, too, that if you do not call Christ your Lord and Savior, that instead you would take some time to reflect on maybe some of the things that I shared with you tonight and think about all that Christ has done so that you could be with him. Why would you reject a Savior like that? He longs to be with you. He's done everything that God has required so that you could be with him. And so my encouragement for you would be to not come and partake, but instead sit there in your pew and repent of your sins. Turn from your sins and turn toward Christ right now. Let me pray, and then communion will be open for you. Jesus, we just thank you so much for all that you have done for us. We think about the Christmas season, and we, we think about the baby in the manger. That's usually the first thing that comes to many of our minds. But the implications of that. God, you've come to us in your people in so many different ways we see throughout Scripture but you went the extra mile, to say the least. You became one of us. You became flesh and blood, as John said, and you dwelt among us. And we're so thankful that you didn't just do that just to know what it was like, but you did that because a price had to be paid for our sin. It had to come from someone who was like us that could redeem us, and you did it. We're so thankful that you died for us. We're thankful that you rose from the dead, that you defeated sin and death, and that one day you are coming back in the same way that you left. And we can't wait for that day. Thank you so much, Christ, for what you have done. And I just pray that you would help us during this Christmas season to, to keep that fresh on our minds. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.